And welcome to A Bit More Complicated, the podcast where you can hear science-based discussions about important topics, issues, and problems in society, and what we can do to make them better. I'm Manny Galvan at UNC Chapel Hill. And I'm Dylan Selterman at Johns Hopkins University. Today, we are excited about this episode. We have a very special guest who was the subject of a previous episode. But before we get to our guests, I just want to provide a little bit of background on the general topic for today's episode, which is racial inequality. The stark reality in the U.S. is that there's a lot of important outcomes that are predicted by race. There are significant gaps between white and black Americans on average across a wide variety of topics. By on average, I mean that when you collect data across a lot of black and white folks, you find disparities. But on an individual level, of course, any individual black person can be better off than any individual white person. For example, someone like Kanye West has a far higher income than any white person I know personally. And so... The on average statistics, however, are staggering. Uh, Whites generally have higher incomes, uh, more wealth, higher stock market values, retirement wealth. They have more representation among the Fortune 500 CEOs. They have lower poverty, lower homelessness. Black folks are disproportionately disciplined at schools, more likely to be in poor, underfunded uh, districts, are less likely to be teachers, less likely to graduate from college. Uh, Black folks do not get equal treatment within the criminal justice system, which is often what we talk about when we talk about racial inequality. And there's also massive health inequality where black infants, for example, die at a higher rate. Mothers die more often in childbirth. And generally, there's low lower life expectancy in the black community. And of course, black people are underrepresented in the government and face more obstacles when voting. All of this is outlined and cited uh, to the relevant research literature in an article on my blog titled, Racial Inequality is Real, Here is the Scientific Evidence. This is in the show notes. Our guest for this episode is Dr. Michael Krauss, Associate Professor of Organizational Behavior at the Yale School of Management. Um, Dr. Michael Krauss focuses on the behavioral and emotional states that maintain and perpetuate social and economic inequality in society. So for listeners of the show, you may recall our second episode ever was entitled Kudos to Krauss, in which we talked about his research specifically looking at the associations between how wealthy people are and how happy they are, as well as how wealthy people feel that they are and how happy they are. And so we talked a lot about that. And today we're going to actually have the opportunity to speak with Dr. Krauss and talk more about some of his other lines of research. So Dr. Krauss, welcome to our podcast. Thanks for having me. Yeah, our listeners who have stuck with us over the last few months will recognize you and your work, but they may not know just the extent to which you have influenced the uh, research in your area. Your work, even your early papers back in 2008 and 2009, are just highly cited. Um, Speaking from experience, I'm currently writing a paper outlining a psychological model for how people determine their subjective socioeconomic status or where they think they fit in the broader socioeconomic hierarchy. And I'm citing a ton of your work. Like it's just, it's it's everywhere. It's it's so uh, important. So um, for a lot of non-researchers and those who haven't listened to episode two, which by the way, uh, listener, go back and listen to our first episode about uh, Cross's research. Uh, could you give us just a brief overview of your research program? Yeah, I suppose. I, I mean, 
you know, I, I think about myself as sort of studying one thing, but in, uh, in a lot of different ways. I study how people experience hierarchies in society, uh, racial hierarchies, class hierarchies, how that affects their behavior and their affective states and their motivations, but then also how your behavioral and affective states and emotions affect how you view and potentially perpetuate that hierarchy and maintain it. So, um, you know, all of it's through a psych psychology lens. So how, so how do people think, right? How do people think about themselves? How do they feel about themselves? What, is, what, what emotions are they feeling in the moment when they're below or above other people? Um, so that's the, the general kind of frame for the work. And it's deeply connected to, I think, work in across the social sciences on these similar topics. So when you think about hierarchies and uh, in class and race, but it all, all of the intersecting hierarchies that we experience. Um, there's a rich history of research that psychologists are increasingly embedded in. Um, and so I, I think my work is kind of in that vein and in that tradition. Yeah, that's great. And just to kind of piggyback on that, it seems like some of your earlier work was focused on socioeconomic class, so basically how much wealth or income people have and economic inequality. And then you uh, began investigating how Americans misperceive racial economic inequality. Uh, we discussed your previous investigations and how Americans per misperceive social mobility as well as being far higher than it really is. So what are Americans getting wrong about racial inequality? So I guess I would start from what people in American society want the world to be like, because I think it defines a lot of what we what we um, what we see and how people think about society. But people want to live in a society that's fair. People want to live in a society that's merit based. People want to uh, live in a society that, that allows them to pursue the things that like normatively we value. So the American dream is a big part of that, right? And so people, when they come here, when they're sold on the prospect of coming here, they have some expectations about what the world will be like. And so that's a powerful kind of narrative. It's a powerful kind of story that we tell ourselves about the American experience. And that story tends to you know, depending on your identities, depending on your history, depending on your group memberships, uh, will define in a lot of ways how you see the world. And so with respect to racial inequality in society, that narrative um, leads to this belief system around what society looks like, where people tend to think it's more fair, it's getting better. And it's, um, you know, it, like the, the steady state, the inevitable state of, the, of American society is general linear progress towards greater equality between racial groups, um, black and white Americans in particular in our studies. Yeah, so this, I, I, I like how you're immediately getting to kind of the narrative that's around um, this perception of equality, right? So people are very, feel like there is a lot of equality and that's linked to this perception of an, kind of an idealistic perspective on what American society is. Um, something else that I've noticed in your research is you're trying to map out what are the mechanisms that go from this like idealized perspective people have about America to this perception that there's a lot of equality. There's a couple of things that you've you've dis, you've researched. One of them is about uh, neighborhood characteristics and also the referent group that you might have in comparing with yourself. Um, and that these kinds of things also kind of 
play into whether you think there's a lot of equality or, or uh, a lot of inequality. So what what are can you break that down for us? What are the characteristics? How do, how do the characteristics of, of the neighborhood you live in influence the way you perceive racial inequality or the type of people you compare yourself to? I, I would put it in two buckets, right? Like the, there's like two categories, right? There's an informational piece to what's happening here and a motivational piece. They're not actually in separate buckets. How we process information in the world is deeply motivational. So I don't want to actually completely separate those two things. But for our purposes, it's, it's useful to think about them as separate um, before we tie them together. Um, but the like network effects and I don't knowledge about the history of the United States is in that informational bucket. Um, and it's just like, what's your experience of inequality in the world? What's your, what's your neighborhood experience? What's your friendship group experience? What's your working experience? Who are the people you work with? How do you spend your time? All of that rich data that you get um, in the context of your life is informational about how fair society is. You know, maybe the biggest determinant of some of your theories about how the world works and how you get things is what happens to you and what happens to people that you care about. So that's, that's information about whether society's fair, how society's getting better or worse. And so that's gonna be a determinant of uh, your beliefs about society. And if we live in a society that's segregated along race and class lines, which we do, um, it gives a very distorted picture about like how things are determined, how resources are allocated. That's based on this very confined kind of sense of what are people around you that you care about experiencing. And so that, that information gathering that you're doing in the context of your everyday life can be extremely biased in that way around how similar others are treated. And if you are in an advantaged position, you might feel like that advantage is actually not privilege, but fairness right? Um, and merit. Um, so that's one piece. But the second piece is motivational, right? It's not that we're, we're blank slates, right? And we're not going around getting data on the world and then making inferences. We have beliefs. We have ideas about how the world works that then are a starting point and um, a confirmatory point uh, from which we make judgments about the world. So it's not that I am, you know, brand new baby, like going through society, kind of thinking about how the world works and then like adding data. I have beliefs about the American dream, beliefs about what it takes to be successful in the world and things that confirm those expectations I tend to incorporate. Things that disconfirm, I'm going to need more data before I can make a, um, make a determination, right? And it's this kind of process that leads to us being really flexible in our psychology about how to think about racial inequality. So when things are stereotype consistent about inequalities, so like incarceration rates, for instance, I might come up with and think about a set of information that confirms those stereotypes about differences between black and white Americans in terms of their, um, their propensity to have um, uh, incarceration happen to them over the course of their lives. And that is maybe easier to do than to then apply those same stereotypes to this condition of inequality, right? Wherein I'm thinking about another set of beliefs about fairness, about having my advantage be merit-based. And so it's a different set, a different reference in the same person that confirms this kind of belief that America is largely equal. And, the, and people can have those same two judgments 
um, at two time points, but it's the same person having those judgments. And so that's kind of the reference group effects, right? Like you have these beliefs um, about society that depending on what you're thinking about in terms of aspects of society, you're likely to confirm by going to, you know, uh, ideas that you have, narratives that you have, beliefs that you have, and data that you can use to back it up. Uh, selectively to support those narratives. Right. So I guess what that makes me think of is your work kind of shows that people underestimate the amount of inequality in terms of wealth. Um, but if I'm understanding you correctly, there could be cer certain types of questions you could ask that what people would actually overestimate the amount of inequality. So maybe if you said, what's the disparity in, in policing or like violent crime or something, people will say, Maybe if they have, uh, like you said, if they have these perceptions that the kind of anti-black implicit biases or something like that, that they might actually overestimate that. So this is where like the kind of comparison you're making and what you think about those different groups can be influential. Yeah, that's right. And we have we have exactly these data. Right. So the same person is um, in the same survey is saying both that. Um, black people are disproportionately incarcerated and arrested. At the same time, they're saying that um, black Americans relative to white Americans have um, close to equal wealth. Yeah, I think the, the, the common one is uh, you ask people how many people unarmed black men are, are shot or whatever, and they'll, they'll severely overestimate that. So this is another question I wanted to ask you about the informational piece is it seems like a big part here is innumeracy. Like if you ask somebody a statistic on anything, like how many car accidents there are a year or how many shark attacks there are, like they're going to just wildly overestimate because they have no idea uh, the actual statistics in place. So I'm curious, like, how do you how do you think about that? The problem of enumeracy in this space, because we you know, Keith and I have tried my advisor, Keith Payne, have, have discussed like how to get people to estimate like their SDS in comparison to other people using like more objective standards. But the problem is like the moment you ask somebody to, to do a statistic or tell you about a percentage, like they don't know how to do that or how to think about large numbers like that. So how do you think about that in the context of your research? It's, it's a challenge to say that it's more than just a numeracy definitively. And I, I don't know that I'll ever amount the level of evidence that'll convince everybody, but let, let me just tell you what I know about the, the, the kinds of estimation errors that we see. You see both overestimation and underestimation of statistics, depending on how you frame it, that's always in the motivational direction. So that's, that's one, right? So it's not that people are always overestimating everything. It's that if you frame it in a way that leads to overestimation, they overestimate. It's consistent with their beliefs. You frame it in a way that's underestimating, they underestimate, again, consistent with their beliefs, right? So it's innumeracy, but it's directional, um, and the direction tells you about the underlying psychology and belief systems. And that's why we use it, right? Because, because it's the underlying psychology of like how people are justifying and maintaining systems that we're really interested in. You can also kind of like just control for um, innumeracy by looking at a number of erroneous statistical estimates, right? So there's going to be a factor of accuracy wherein people are you got like 10% statisticians in your sample or something like that. People got A's and stats or something. Um, and so those people are probably closer on average across estimation errors. And you can parcel that out and you can still find these effects, right? So that's another piece of evidence. Um, a third one might be um, 
Oh, uh, so a lot of times we're interested in like change in society across time. So we're not interested necessarily in the magnitude of inaccuracy. Instead, we're just interested in like, what are your theories of how society changes over time? So you could be inaccurate however you want to be at time one, but I'm interested in you in whether you think things get better or worse, right? So it's the directionality and not that specific magnitude that matters. And again, the directionality tells you about the psychology and it's always in that motivational direction. So um, the, the, the evidence about whether the numeracy plays a role, I think of course it does, right? Like it makes these kinds of situations difficult for people to see accurately and like contend with and really process these kinds of questions. But even with that, I think there's an opportunity to really understand the narratives and the beliefs and the motivations that really undergird why people are always saying that things are more equal than federal data suggests they are. Right. And I think that's the really key thing for people to understand about your research is you're not just identifying that people misperceive the gaps, which they do, but you're also identifying like here is a set of social psychological factors that predict which way you go. Here's a set of beliefs uh, that predict which way you go. And it just happens to be um, that the way you misperceive reality here is linked so much to your motivations, what you actually like, what your political motivations are. Um, and so I think that's a, uh, yeah, it's just so such interesting research. Yeah. And I, I want to follow up on what you were just saying about basically how people want to see things. And I guess maybe I'm misreading, but it's it, my, my reading of the general cultural vibe right now is that people are a little bit more pessimistic, especially about the economy and maybe their personal finances. I'm wondering how that type of mindset that's a bit more pessimistic, and maybe there's not yet research that fully explores this, but how do you think that influences the way people might misperceive uh, inequalities in society? Yeah, so I, so I think you're right in like reading the general sentiment is that people are more pessimistic about economic outcomes than in the past. And, uh, you know, depending on how you, um, the kinds of questions that you ask, you can see some really pessimistic kind of beliefs. Um, I, I'm trying to think about like convincing data on changes in people's beliefs. And, I, and that's not coming up for me. Like it's a really good study to do, right? Like I would imagine that if you were to longitudinally ask people about whether or not things are going to be better for their next generation, right? They're like, let's say they're, these are parents that you're surveying longitudinally. You ask them about like what's going to happen for their kids. And I bet there's more pessimism in that than there was a generation ago. Um, or even with this, with the same parents over time, there's, there's, there's slightly more pessimism. Um, and I think if you were to cue and you know, talk about climate, even right, you'd get similar kinds of sentiments, right? Like, so now I start talking about climate and people are, wow, gosh, is this is going to be the coolest summer that we have. Um, and until next year, which will be the coolest summer until next year, right? And, and then, um, and so on and so forth, right? So, so there's that. But um, what I would say about these motivations is um, the pessimism actually tells you a bit about where these motivations come from, about seeing society as more fair and more just. Sitting psychologically in uncomfortable realities about the world 
persistently is just really tough. Like it's tough for you to sit with the notion that like, it doesn't matter what you do. Your, the categories that you're a member of determine a lot of your outcomes. And those, those effects are larger than any kind of individual efforts that you might put forward, or they're at least close to equal to those efforts that you might put forward, right? That those kinds of realities, um, to really sit with them all the time, are, that's deeply demotivating, right? It doesn't lend itself to the kind of individual level actions that you need to engage in every day to you know, secure your, your family's health and well-being, to get up every day, right? Like that's just motivationally, it's, it's, it's pretty toxic for that. And so then what can happen for people, even in, within that pessimism, is that there's comfort in the idea that things could shift, things could turn around, and that things could get better, and that finally now, right? Like that finally now, we're going to make some progress. Um, and so even in really pessimistic times, like, like now could, we could think about them, there's a lot of profound optimism, even unfounded optimism about how things can shift. Right. Yeah. And so I guess I, I want to switch gears a little bit because I know you've done some research to try to disrupt the inaccurate narratives that are out there. And you've done some work on interventions to try to reduce people's misperceptions of racial inequality. Can you tell us a little bit more about those studies and what you found? Sure. Um, yeah, that work is based on experiences in the classroom, essentially, not for everybody, but for people, when you talk about racial wealth and inequality in society, people are shocked. Um, and for some people, it changes how they think about the world in, in really profound ways, right? Um, special context, uh, class on inequality, people are coming with a motivation to learn. They want to get a grasp of how society works and how it's structured. And so there's a lot going on there that supports a change in mindset about the world. But that's, you know, basically, you know, in many ways, like why you do research on inequality, right, is the hope that there is some road, there's some informational road that you could ride that would influence people and change their perceptions about, you know, what's real about society. And the hope is that enough people who have a firm grasp on how society is actually structured. If there are enough people, then maybe um, some of those people would be powerful or some of those movements would be powerful. And then um, they, they use those pieces of information to affect some kind of change, right? So that's, that's the basic motivation for the study. The, um, the study basically tests uh, three different interventions for helping people be more accurate about the magnitude of black, white wealth inequality in society. One is data-based. One is story-based and one's a com combination of the two. Data is like, if I tell you data about the magnitude of black, white wealth inequality, um, magnitude of um, differences in mobility between black and white uh, boys in the United States, um, funding gaps in education, um, difficulties in securing wealth through home ownership. If I tell you about those data, does that make you more accurate? And then do you stick to it over time? A story condition is if I, if I relay the same um, social conditions, but in the context of a single 
black families struggling with those things. So struggling with education inequality, struggling with um, housing, struggling with wealth disparities, struggling with a lack of mobility. Does that change your mind? So it's like more of a compelling story rather than the data. And then the combination is both story and data together. And, and in general, what we find is that, um, especially for black, white wealth inequality, the data are what tend to move people towards greater accuracy um, though it's not perfect accuracy. And then of course there's some attrition over time because we bring people back for surveys um, up to 18 months later. And so they're more accurate, but less so than they were right after the intervention. So, so we've talked about how uh, your beliefs on your misperceptions about inequality can be linked to maybe policy preferences you have downstream from from your misunderstanding of the reality. Um, actually, we talked about it in both directions, right? Like your preconceived political ideas can inform the way that you think about racial inequality. But also we're talking about how if you don't know a problem is there, then you're not going to want to fix it. And so it's, it's kind of the other side of it. So is there an indication that this uh, intervention also kind of shifted the way people were going to vote or are more supportive of, uh, of welfare programs or reparations or something like that. Right. So not in, the, in this study, right? Like, so the um, intervention changes people's beliefs about uh, black, white wealth inequality, but it doesn't shift people's uh, policy preferences. Um, so often like, you know, one of the things that can happen is like you have this, more realistic belief about the world, but the specific policies that are needed to affect that change, you're just unconvinced by. Um, and so that's probably what's happening in our study. Like it's going to take some more targeted kind of convincing to say that something like a federal job guarantee program is something that's like feasible and something that I might be supportive of and consistent with my beliefs about the world, right? One kind of um, helpful thing that happens for our, for our folks in the data conditions is that they become more structural in how they think about inequalities. So when they try to come up with solutions, when we talk to them during the study, right after the intervention, for um, people dealing with racial inequality, the people in the data condition talk more structurally, right? Like changes in funding for schools, to um, reduce the funding inequalities. People in the story condition are really focused on helping a single family. So they start talking about how parents can catch up um, and like read to their kids and summer programs that they could roll their kids in, right? So it's a different way of thinking about racial inequality that's really individualized. So, it, so at least um, in those data, there's an inkling about how people are thinking about and potentially prime for more collective action um, in in uh, in terms of uh, you know like specific policy change that's structural rather than focused on individual responsibility. That is very interesting. Yeah, and ultimately, yeah, it seems like the solution to a systemic problem that emerged starting with slavery and then continued on until the present day with tons of systemic forces instigating it and then maintaining it. It seems like the way you solve that problem is through systemic intervention, but so it, uh, it's, it's, it's promising, I guess, that people are moving over to a more structural understanding of the issue. Um, I wanted to explore the possibility of unintended consequences too. So just, just like we've been talking about, I'm also a proponent of the notion that if you can't see a problem, then you can't fix it. And in that sense, I see your research 
uh, it's always been the kind of eye-opening thing for me that I would imagine instigates people to want to change the massive gaps that exist, that want to lessen them, want to do something about this massive problem you didn't know was there, you know, until you were in Dr. Krause's study and you're like, oh my God, this is this is a massive problem in society that I had no idea was there. But what I've heard, I've heard some people articulate the concern that increasing awareness might also increase biases. So basically, wow, uh, black folks are poorer than I thought. And it makes people, it entrenches people into being more, uh, uh, not discriminatory, but maybe having more bias against this group that, that is actually doing worse than they thought they were doing. Um, what do you think of that concern? Have, have you found any evidence for that hypothesis that there's this kind of uh, maybe negative consequence of learning about inequality? Right. I mean, this is a, um, this is a solid finding in psychology. I like the title of uh, Hedy and Eberhardt. I think it's 2018, but the numbers don't speak for themselves. It's like the, the point here, right? Like you don't just talk about inequalities and not expect that to go many different directions, right? When you talk about inequalities, people can fill in their reasons for the inequalities. And so people can be selective about how they explain the causes um, in ways that are consistent with their own beliefs. That's a challenge with communicating any data. And as social scientists, we often don't take that super seriously, right? But we need to be really serious about how we always, how we communicate with, um, about categories, about the causes of differences between groups, right? Like every single way that you talk about this uh, requires a, a lot of responsibility on the part of social scientists to acknowledge that these biases and how people interpret and take on uh, these data are present. And so more people need to take that seriously just in general. It's not that we can't talk about disparities because of how some people might interpret them. Because not talking about disparities is, is a certain way for us to not do anything about them, right? Like, you know, we won't do anything about the wealth gap between black and white Americans if people do not know it exists. Right. Like, you know that with certainty. So it's not about like whether you talk about it or not, but it is always about how, right? Right. Like, how can you talk about it in ways that are compelling and convincing that are anticipating the fact that people have psychological biases and they're motivated how they take on data, right? So, you know, one of the things that I'm, I think psychologists need to take a more central role in policy discussions because you can't just design um, and expect the data to really speak, right? You have to have experts who are communicating with the public who know how people are likely to interpret those data. And so together with powerful economic analyses and psychologists who are deeply expert in how people interpret those kinds of findings, and working together, can you really develop um, policies around the data and messaging strategies that are gonna be really effective? Yeah, I think that's one of the big take home points from the COVID pandemic. I think you know that we need to incorporate more psychologists into communicating research findings because it's not enough just to say, oh, we have a vaccine and here's the effectiveness data. You need to do exactly what you were just describing and have people who are expert in terms of 
how people receive information and, and, and use them in the process. Um, I, I'd like to switch gears a little bit and talk about another area of your work, which is a bit lighter. In addition to studying inequality, uh, it looks like you've also done some interesting research in sports psychology. And I'm a big sports guy, so I can't help but share my curiosity about this research. You have a paper that looked at NBA players' performance based on nonverbal communication. And specifically, you looked at how much teammates touched each other and found a correlation between that and their performance. You, you watched games and looked at uh, instances of specific touching behaviors, fist bumps, <laughs> high fives, chest bumps, leaping shoulder bumps, <laughs> chest punches, head slaps, head grabs, low fives, high tens, full <laughs> hugs, half hugs, and team huddles. So I guess my, my main question is, do you think all touching behavior is the same? Like I would imagine a fist bump sends a different <laughs> social signal than a hand, a head grab. And I guess just, you know, anecdotally watching players, it seems like they do more low intention, low intensity touching, like more frequently and then high intensity touching when something really big happens, like a last second shot. Right. So um, I, I guess maybe the, the scientific um, kind of uh, take on this is um, like we didn't have, I think, this, the granularity and the statistical power to be able to do this analysis. Um, but what that means is basically we didn't have enough data to be able to say that these touches that are happening in different contexts and have different meanings, right? Like what happened, a leaping shoulder bump, what happens, what's happened? Something good's happening right there, right? Um, so that's different than what happens at the free throw line, which is a, almost a normative kind of high-fiving that's happening, right? Um, what we are picking up on in these data though, um, because we got one game uh, for each of the teams and it's always a close game, right? So, it, so that's the kind of control we have. We're trying to get these games that are highly contested. So both teams have a chance of winning and losing. Um, and they're, um, so, so both teams are going to have kind of positive and negative occurrences. And they're all early season games. So um, uh, it's not necessarily the level of intensity that you find at the end of the season. Um, uh, where in the end of the season is really the outcome, right? That people are trying to avoid. But in those games, teams have like an overall kind of a trait-based nature to how much they touch. And I think that's what we're, we're, we're tapping into there. Um, anecdotally, like we're watching the games during the season. And I think this is the season where the Lakers beat the Celtics in the finals. Um, so it's right around that time. Um, but, but we're, um, we're watching these games and the Knicks are pretty bad during this time. Um, uh, they're, they're, uh, I'm a Knicks <laughs> fan, so that 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 hits me hard. <laughs> yeah, uh, you know, it hits a lot of people. Sorry to, sorry to New York. Um, no, that's that's fine. <laughs> the um, what happens uh, in one of the games is uh, I think Derek Fisher goes tumbling down uh, uh, along the sideline. Uh, ball goes out of bounds. He's sitting on his on his bottom um, as the the broadcast is about to go to timeout, and he just sits there, right. And then commercial, uh, that's very different behavior, right? Like, like uh, somebody on your team falls, other teams will have two and three members pick you up, right? And so that's the kind of behavior that you're catching in our study, where in some teams just are not, they don't have it yet. Like they don't have the chemistry, they don't have the kind of teamwork and cooperation 
um, that some of the um, higher touch teams you see engage in. Yeah, that's great. Thanks. Do you have a favorite team? Uh, so I'm, I spent a lot of time in the Bay Area. My, um, my, my parents were born in the Bay Area, so I'm a Warriors fan, uh, which, um, yeah. you know, we're Lucky having you. quite a moment <laughs> right now that I'm uh, not going to let many people forget. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I, they're, a, they're a fun team to watch. I, I, I like watching them, too. Have you done any follow-up studies on this, or are you planning to? No, I mean, uh, we haven't, we haven't uh, had plans to do follow-ups. Um, I, I guess, um, like, uh, occasionally people uh, reach out to, to think about, like, what to do, um, uh, you know, in, in organizations and stuff. Um, so in sports organizations, so we've done a, a little bit of discussions with them about that, but I've always been kind of too busy to like switch careers, um, yeah. to do like data analysis for teams. Although it's, um, I don't know, who knows? Maybe, maybe that's, maybe that's my next job. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. anyone, anyone listening, looking for a dissertation idea, here you go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. On the, on the topic of of your next job. So when we first talked about you and your research, we spent a good like 10 minutes at the beginning of the episode just talking about the tenure situation. And it was it was the hubbub on Twitter. And a lot of people were pretty upset. Obviously, you were, I, I thought it sounded pretty ridiculous also. And, you know, they basically decided not to grant you tenure despite having an impressive and impactful research program. So we're curious if you have thoughts to share on the topic. Like I, there was some kind of investigation that you pursued what was the result of that? Is there any evidence that, is there any suggestion that there's gonna be a shift in policies at Yale School of Management going forward? And any news on where you might be now that uh, you're gonna be wrapping up your time at Yale? Yeah, I mean, um, you know, about this, I, I guess I would say that any time a tenure decision is like this, uh, wherein you, um, you don't get tenure at an institution that you spend a lot of time at. And um, that's simultaneously not a shocking thing, right? Like um, it happens all the time, but it's also like, uh, I don't know, it's gross, right? It's, it's gross to, um, you know, spend a lot of years somewhere and then have to go somewhere else because they think something about your work. Um, so that part I think is like, it's, it's mundane, but also terrible. Um, it's kind of like where I'm at with that. Um, mm -hmm. the, um, and I wouldn't wish it on anybody, but also there are plenty of people in more precarious academic positions than I am. Like I'm, um, harder, this would have been harder on me, um, five years ago, um, it's not that I'm, uh, uh, I, I'm going to have a number of options in the future. So it's not that, you know, my career's over. Right. So, so from that perspective, it's from what we try to do as a family is we try to turn it from a, a terrible thing that happened into a adventure, yeah, you know, that, right. That, that you didn't expect that you're, to move your five-year-old and your nine-year-old at this time, but you can and you will. And, and kids um, 
are resilient to that. Um, uh, and, and mine are um, typical of that. The other thing I would say is that the outrage and support um, that was pretty public during that time was, um, uh, I, I would say that it would have been hard to, um, hard, hard to deal with the whole thing without that kind of support that was public in that way, but also was expressed privately. And, um, and so just um, I'm always taking opportunities to really thank people who sign petitions, who email people, who, um, you know, who are still uh, committed to helping me in, a, in a various, various ways. Like in many ways, it's, um, it's really been life-giving to, to kind of experience all that. Um, so, so in terms of like investigations um, or policy changes at, at, at Yale or the School of Management, like you would just have to talk to them. Like, you know, I don't, I don't, um, I, one of the things that um, happens as a result of, of this is I go elsewhere. And so all my energy and effort that is often spent improving the places that I work um, in an effort to, um, you know, do high quality research, do research on topics that are important to support um, scholars who have historically been marginalized. I do all that work and many places would think of that as positive. And so when you don't work somewhere, you don't do those things for that place anymore. So, Drugs. Don't know. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Makes sense. Um, well, I appreciate you talking to us about that. And yeah, and thinking about just the difficulty, it certainly the challenge it was as a as a parent to two young kids, especially. I think that's really yeah. It's it's, it's sorry that 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 happened. It just sounds it sounds very difficult. I take your point earlier that like you you are you have this privileged perspective, like position as well um but i think yeah it's easy to get wrapped up in the um kind of the politics of it and not think about how like the real life consequences for you are just are pretty difficult yeah and i I mean i I guess there's probably a sense of justice that we all hold right about it's related to our research right like that i want things to work out for you when you like if you have impact on scholarship like you do, and if you have a track record of research that, that you do, shouldn't this work out? And um, I mean, on the one hand, yes, but on the other hand, like I do study what I study and I know how the world actually works versus how we like it to. Right. So, um, you know, I, I can tell you that um, I was prepared for this. Mm. Okay, we're gonna wrap up on a final question. This question is uh, kind of like a thought experiment and I get to hear your reaction to it. So imagine you're in another dimension and you're looking at a panel of dials that control human behavior. There are dials that control small things like how much cotton candy is eaten every year. And there are dials that control really big things like how likely people are to get married in general. So. You, you can just materialize one of these dials by just thinking about the thing that you want to change. So do you move, do you find the dial and move it 
if you do, which one do you move? How much do you move it and why? And I can move it. I, and I, don't, I don't have to move the dials about uh, how much people get married. I can move it about anything. Yeah, it's just like you can conceptualize any dial yeah. you want and just move it. Something about human nature. Yeah. Um, right. So, so, I mean, I think that um, I would probably... Um, I would probably do it with the, the the second dial, right? Like I think I would improve people's lives with policy, right? And then, um, and so that's probably the second dial. Like a big a big one. So is there a specific policy you just like would implement? Yeah, I mean like, uh, you know, there's a lot of them, right? Um, uh, <laughs> but you can only move one dial. Yeah, so, um, uh, basic income universal basic income yeah 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 for sure cool 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 yeah that makes sense so you just turn up the dial on universal basic income set it to a nice amount that that will help people survive and not bankrupt the government or something and then oh no we don't we don't care about bankrupting <laughs> <laughs> all right well thank you again Dr. Kraus, for meeting with us, for uh, I feel like you're a part of the show because you were the topic for our second episode <laughs> anyway. So, the patron saint of the a bit more complicated podcast. So, uh, I appreciate you. Yeah, and and uh, I just want to echo that. Thank you, and we're we're rooting for you, and we we support you, and and hope wherever you end up, you know, you continue to be as successful and influential as you have been and keep making awesome contributions to the field. Thanks for having me on. And uh, um, we'll talk again at another time. Sounds good. Great. Thanks for listening. Join us next time on A Bit More Complicated. If you enjoyed the episode, please subscribe to our podcast, leave a friendly rating, and share with a friend. If you have a reaction you'd like to share with us, please find us on Twitter at a bit more pod or send an email to more complicated pod at gmail.com. 